Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this edition, we visit with Les Blank, filmmaker extraordinaire. Les Blank will receive the Albert Maisel Award at the 2011 Mendocino Film Festival, where his films The Burden of Dreams and Lightning Hopkins will be shown. Though Les Blank has had a long fascination with films, his career turned to filmmaking after he saw The Seventh Seal by Ingemar Bergman during a rather depressing period in his life. Our conversation, which was recorded by phone from his home in Berkeley, California on May 23, 2011, began when I asked him why he makes films. I make films is because they show things that you want people to see. Well, I originally wanted to, thought I wanted to be a writer. I used to uh, write with words, and it was hard getting people to read these things. I mean, everybody seems to want to watch pictures or pictures that move. That goes back to your childhood with Pinocchio. Well, you could say that was my first audiovisual experience that I remember. How did the audiovisual experiences for you evolve? Um, I figure from uh, simple arithmetic, you're 74, 75 now? Yeah. How did they evolve in the past 70 or so years? Well, I was always very uh, fascinated. Well, I like pictures, and uh, when I learned to read words, I, I, I like to read books and stories. I especially like stories, see stories and uh, Huckleberry Finn, that sort of thing. But the the movie just got me totally uh, hooked immediately, and I wanted to see movies ever after. And then the radio was um, a, a constant present, uh, presence. I completely enjoyed hearing sports uh, events like boxing matches. I was a big fan of the, I guess they had Saturday night boxing matches, the bells and the announcer and the blow-by-blow description and the, the baseball games. I've listened to all those with rapt attention. And then when they, when they had the uh, radio serials, I was a big fan of all these. Uh, Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, and the, the uh, Archie, and anything they had, I was there. And listen to these things, and then the, the movies were just all the serials, the Tom Mix and other cowboy, singing cowboy serials, and the, the um, documentaries they show at the movie theater, like Frank Buck, Bring Them Back Alive, about a guy goes to Africa and catches wild animals and brings them back to, uh, I guess, put into circuses and zoos. On your website, there was a quote that says, uh, in the best sense of the word, independent means no allegiance except to one's own muse, and if there had ever been a role model for a genuine idea, it's less blank. So I was wondering, if you'd accept as a given that your muse is your guide, how would you describe the leadership of where it's taken you? I... Uh... If the news is around and, and making itself present, I certainly will follow. It's often disappeared, and I don't know where it's gone, and I hope for it to come back. But when it's around, I'm there. Can you 
give us a sense of its pulse or its feel, the concept of the muse when it appears? If you're filming something that I like filming and things go right, then amazing things happen with the lighting or with the actions of the subjects or subject matter. In case of nature things, uh, changing light, uh, there's moments when it's supernatural, and I feel like, uh, I guess athletes describe it as being in the in the groove, what, what do they call it, in the, in the uh, moment. But I would say that's when the muse is around. What provokes you or what incites your curiosity to present a film, the conception through the final product? Well, there's no one way. They're all very different. Uh, sometimes people simply come to me and say, "Hey, uh, I got. I'm, I uh, hope you'll be interested in something I'm interested in. I think you could do a good job with it." For instance, uh, a woman named C.C. Conway, a, a um, English teacher at the University of North Carolina and now Appalachian State University, was also very keen on uh, local local um, folk musicians, uh, mainly Tommy Jarrell, who's a fiddle player and a storyteller. And she wanted me to help her and her partner, Alice Gerard, to do a film on Tommy Jarrell. And they played me some of his songs that sounded kind of scratchy, and I'm not sure he was in the proper key, but eventually they wore me down, and I agreed to go back and make the film, and it became Sprout, Wings, and Fly, and then two more films made from the outtakes of the original film. And the more I was around this man, the more I came to admire him and be glad I was there doing film on him. Is that similar to uh, the magnet that drew you to the Lightning Hopkins film? He was an American country blues singer, songwriter, and guitarist from Houston, Texas, who died in 1982. I was a big fan of folk music at a time when uh, when, the, when there the so-called folk music revival was going on. There was, there had been a surge of popularity of folk music earlier, I think, in the 30s, when during hard times people found a voice in the words of people who uh, sang for the poor and the oppressed. And in those days, everybody was poor and oppressed. And uh, times were tough, and music seemed to to crystallize the feelings of what was going on in an artistic way that had gave some form to these very confused feelings of the time. And then, the, I guess, things circled around, and in the early 60s, there was a folk music revival. And... There was a club in Los Angeles called the Ashgrove, which was a uh, ground zero for for the intermingling or crossing together, coming together of uh, folk music and the political sentiments of the time. Of I guess the uh, wars against segregation were picking up steam, uh, and uh, I was fascinated with the whole scene. The Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry would come through there. One was blind, one was lame, and one would lead the other, and they hated each other's guts, but they found that they couldn't get along without each other. So that was a great uh, show to see them there. And Lightning Hopkins was one of the musicians who came through there. And I enjoyed his music very much. And it just so happened that around that time, I'd 
met a young man from Long Island originally who ended up in uh, Houston, Texas, living in kind of a hippie commune type place. And he had uh, met me in a art opening and found out I was a filmmaker living in California. And he said he wanted to be a filmmaker. And I said, well, if you ever get out to California, I'll look me up. Maybe I'll get you a job as my assistant. I did hire assistants from time to time to do these industrial films I was doing to make a make a living. And he showed up, and I hired him, and uh, he learned all the basics of filmmaking, how to make a splice, how to focus a camera, how to do this and do that. And we got along pretty well and went out together to this folk music place and heard Lightning Hopkins, and this was the second time I'd heard him. And he said that, where he came from in Houston, there was he had a friend who had a recording studio who knew Lightning, and he also knew this man named John Lomax, who was Alan Lomax's brother, the uh, great American folklorist. And those two brothers were the son of John Lomax Sr., who was the, considered the father of all American folklore. He was a man who went around recording worker songs and cowboy songs. He found songs like, like Red River Valley, and he found Muddy Waters, took Alan along with him, I believe, and together they, they found Muddy Waters and many other great American uh, singers and songwriters. So uh, this young man, my assistant, said that he thought maybe we could do a film on lightning because it so happens that his father, who was a shoe manufacturer of ladies' shoes, had always wanted his son to make something of his life. And at the time, living in a hippie commune in Houston was not something he really cared for his son to be doing much longer. So the son, aware of his father's uh, interest in him spreading himself out and doing something more uh, acceptable in his father's eyes, suggested to his father that he could be a movie producer if he would loan the son $5,000 to make his first movie. So this is the plan we had. We uh, went backstage to see Lightning, and I happened to have a 16-millimeter projector with me, and it was a 16-millimeter print of a film I'd made on Dizzy Gillespie, which was uh, something that was thrown to me by someone who had started the film, but the cameraman didn't do a very good job, and the exposures were bad, and he, I guess, fired the cameraman, and he's looking for someone else to finish the film, and he didn't have any money. And he said he would give me $200 if I could find a way to finish the film. So I uh, I did manage to get Dizzy Gillespie to, to let me hang around and shoot him some, and I put that together, and that little film is what I showed to Lightning in his dressing room to show him uh, that I could make films, and I could make films on musicians. And then he said, well, how much money do you boys have for Poe Lightning? And I said, well, we have $5,000 to make this movie, and he said, well, that'll be just fine. He'll, he would take that. And then we said, well, you can't have it all because we got to use some of this to buy film and to uh, gasoline to get down to Texas and food when we were there. And he said, well, how much money you boys are going to pay for Lightning? And we said, well, we think we can handle 1500 And he said, okay, I'll take that. So then we um, gave him a third of it up front and then uh, promised to, to give him the other two-thirds when we finished the film, we went down to Houston. That's how that film got started. That film will be shown at the Mendocino Film Festival the first weekend in June. That's correct. 
Let's listen to a Lightning Hopkins song. Picture on the wall from his L.A. Blues album. You're listening to Radio Curious in conversation with Les Blank, filmmaker extraordinaire, a man who's been making a wide variety of movies on many topics for approximately 40 years. He'll be present at the Mendocino Film Festival the weekend of June 3rd and 4th in Mendocino, California, and the recipient of the Albert Maisel Award. I'm Barry Vogel. The Albert Maisel Award, what's your reaction? Well, I'm, I'm uh, very glad to be selected, and to uh, be selected by him is, uh, is uh, also a great honor, I think. Great respect for his work and his his uh, sensitivity. I'm interested if you could talk about suspension of disbelief and how that figures into a documentary versus how it would figure into fictional movie. I can't really say. Uh, I guess with films, there are certain conventions that people have to accept in order to sit still and watch it. Uh, I'm not analytical enough to be able to lay it all down. Maybe you could share with us what those conventions are that people would have to accept. Sitting quietly? Sitting quietly helps. Yeah, if people don't talk or watch their cell phones or check their email while they're watching, that's always a big help to to make themselves available to see and hear all there is that's being presented in the film and in the soundtrack. And uh, I guess there's devices you use in telling a story on film that people come to accept. Uh, I can't think of any right now. Uh, well, you have your establishing shot to show what environment you're in, and you try to tell, get the, lead the audience by the hand, sort of, to introduce your characters and create some sense of motion and direction. And as you unload or reveal things about the situation, the countryside or the characters we're watching, you start building a picture of who this person is or what they're up to or what they have to offer. And then you, it's like opening doors to different rooms and you lead people through one room after the other. And as they move along, they, they build up more basis for what's going on. And maybe some of this ties directly to them and their feelings or their background or who they are. Or the humanity begins to be shared from the viewer to the the uh, person on the screen. We're all human beings, and we have all had certain experiences, and some experiences are parallel, similar. And I suppose uh, any of us could have been, could be anyone else who's in the film somehow. I'd like to back up just a little bit uh, where you were talking about the conventions and filmmaking and the practical aspects. What you would delegate to an assistant and what you would choose not to delegate in terms of the production. Well, usually I do my own camera work until recently when the digital cameras came along and got 
kind of complicated. But I would always do my own shooting. Like I had a hard time explaining to someone else what I wanted shot. There's a certain feelings you get only when you're looking through a viewfinder. See, I don't really know what I'm doing or where I want to go. or But once I see the subject through the viewfinder, I start finding myself panning the camera or zooming in to get something. And then I, just, uh, I start sensing what it is I'm looking for when I see it happening. I can't anticipated or I can't tell someone else to do this. And the sound runs parallel to uh, the vision, and you edit that or put it in or take it out later? Well, you're usually shooting synchronous sound, yeah, and then you also record other things going on. You record dialogue, for instance. You get a character separate from the shooting and just record voice over, and often that voice is integrated in with the soundtrack edited in to help the story along. There's another sense that I was curious about. I recall growing up in Hollywood, there was an epic where odors were sometimes sent wafting into the movie theater. And I uh, understand from your website that at times you would be outside the theater and fry up some garlic or cook up some beans or other aromatic sensory objects to be part of the film and I'm wondering if we could talk about garlic for a minute. Sure. What can you tell us? About garlic? Yeah. Well it's a very aromatic herb that uh, causes fear in some people who don't want to smell like garlic. It's uh, it's um, they're abused by many people with care. That's, it goes way back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, I believe, when people, when, when the upper classes began separating from the lower classes, when, when people became in charge of labor, they, they began to look at laborers as people who reeked of garlic, and it became a social, social uh, um, irritation, I guess, people, the upper class Look down the lower class as garlic eaters. You can go see it's a wonderful life, and the, the capitalist banker is referring to the Italians as being garlic eaters. And uh, this has sort of been a thread in our history. And in fact, North America is one of the few spots on the whole planet that has an aversion to garlic eating, along with uh, the Scandinavian countries and United Kingdom and Germany. All everyone plays, everyone else loves and craves garlic and has no problem with it. Yet your film about garlic was uh, given great recognition. It was selected by the National Film Registry. They started about 20 years ago selecting 25 films a year that were important, either historically or aesthetically or uh, politically. Or anyway, that garlic was one of those films. Can you tell us about that film? Well, it's uh, something that started in soon after I moved to Berkeley, and I moved here in '75. And Alice Waters, at the time I was uh, first met her, she was living with Tom Luddy, who was a, 
a uh, fan of my work. In fact, he programmed me in the Pacific Film Archive when it first started up. And he also programmed the Lightning Hopkins film, which showed as a short subject in an art house in San Francisco. And he found people kept coming back to see the feature film in order to see the short subject that preceded it. And after they watched the short, they'd walk out, having been satisfied to see that film again. He thought something was happening and wanted to know more about me and brought me up here. And Alice Waters picked me up at the airport. Alice Waters is an American chef and owner of Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, a restaurant famous for its organic, locally grown ingredients. I thought she was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, and when she's cooked, I thought she was the most best cook I'd ever eaten the food of, and I thought, I can't get enough of this lady, and when she started her restaurant, I was always hanging around. Uh, it was an excuse to be near her and to eat her food, and I thought, what's a better way to make a movie than do a movie on what I most feel passionate about, and so I started doing a movie just as a kind of a lark. When I heard she was going to have a garlic celebration to, to cook all the famous garlic dishes to celebrate the French Revolution on Bastille Day, July 14th, I think it is. And so uh, I shot that evening, and it was fun. And then uh, a year later, she decided to have a second garlic celebration, and I got the camera out again. And this time I bought some new film. The first time around, I used old film from my refrigerator. Most of it was over too old and didn't process too well. Then she did this a third year and then a fourth year, and then I suddenly found myself $10,000 into this film. I had no visible means of support. I was living on unemployment and began to question my mental powers because also I couldn't find a a grant. No one would give me a grant. The National Endowment for the Arts said it was a silly subject to make a movie of, and the Fresh Fruits and Vegetables Organization in Washington thought it was crazy and idiotic, and they had no use for such a film. No one would give me any money. Alice Waters had a benefit, and for $100 a person, people could come to this special garlic dinner to benefit the film. And I believe I ended up with $600 or $800, and that was my only uh, grant to make the film. And then uh, soon after that, a uh, buyer from German TV came through town looking for something. He was from the most radical German TV program and wanted something radical for his series, and Tom Luddy pointed him in my direction, and he saw the film, and when it was over, he clapped his hand and exclaimed, Wunderbar, this film perfectly demonstrates the spiritual decadence of America. I want to buy it for our station. And I said, well, I want to sell it for your station, and then he gave me $25,000. That let me finish the film, and then they also invited me to the Berlin Film Festival, and I went over there. They wouldn't let me cook garlic in the theater in Berlin, but they said you could go to the Art Academy and cook garlic out there. So I went out there, and we showed the film, and they, we put garlic in the oven, but it was a centigrade oven. I wasn't used to converting Fahrenheit to centigrade, and I burned all the garlic. And they thought it was great anyway and started eating all the black cinders of the garlic. I kept trying to stop them. I couldn't bite them off and I had to eat it and it was just ashes basically. But they, at that time, the Germans didn't really have much experience eating garlic. They didn't know what it was supposed to taste like. It smelled really good while it was burning. But since then, uh, it's changed drastically. All the guest workers have come in from Turkey and Italy and Spain and 
Yugoslavia and brought their garlic cuisine with them. And then younger Germans started learning to like this stuff. This sounds like uh, something your friend Werner Herzog said in The Burden of Dreams, uh, cooking is the only alternative to filmmaking. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Cooking is a, lot, is a lot like filmmaking. It's, you find subjects that you like, and you can arrange in ways like editing a film. You cook a meal. You take all your ingredients and you serve them one after the other or you mix them up while you cook them. And this visual and sound and taste delights all the way through the process. Then the final moment is when you go to the movie theater and watch the finished film, or you sit down at the table and eat your finished meal. So from the eater's perspective or the viewer's perspective, uh, you see the final product. From the cook's perspective and Les Blanc's perspective, uh, you get to create the product and see the final product. And with a film, see it again and again. That's true. Yeah, you can't eat the same meal over and over. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. film, just like you made it over and over. So Les Blanc, uh, tell us how you would like to be remembered. Hopefully in a positive way People will be glad I was around and I contributed something to making their lives more enjoyable. A great chef of movies, perhaps. That would be nice. And can you tell us if there's a eureka moment or an aha moment that changed your life? Yeah, I could say it was when I went to see A. Mark Bergman's Seventh Seal at a time when I was in particularly low spirit. I was down as I ever have been in my life, and I didn't think I could ever go any lower. And I thought things were pretty bleak. And I went to see the movie, and I found it was someone that was worse off than I was. And then it made me feel so good by comparison that I came out of the theater whistling and feeling grateful for this opportunity to experience this. And I wanted to share it with other people, and I wanted to become a filmmaker myself. If I couldn't become a filmmaker, I wanted to hang around those who could make films. I wanted to be in the presence of the filmmaking process. What would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? I'd like to enjoy it as much as I can and share what I have with those who might benefit from it or appreciate it. And is there a book or a film that you could recommend to our listeners? Well, I'd recommend The Seventh Seal, the one that did so much for me or other films by Ingmar, Ingmar Bergman. I like uh, a lot of other filmmakers, too, of course, but that's the one I was just was talking about. And there's a play opening on Broadway, or off-Broadway, that is based on Ingmar Bergman's film, which caught my attention. I read about it in the last weekend, uh, Through a Glass Darkly, which is a, it's a good film. I'm in, interested to see what they do on the stage with it. If you've already seen Seventh Seal, you might want to pick up Through a Glass Darkly. Check that out. Well, Les Blank, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious, and we look forward to seeing you at the Mendocino Film Festival in Mendocino, California, the first weekend in June. Very good. I'd be glad to be there. Thank you very much. The films that Les Blank recommends are both by Ingemar Bergman, The Seventh Seal, and Through a Glass Darkly which is currently an off-Broadway play. Les Blank will be present at the Mendocino Film Festival the weekend of June 3rd and 4th in Mendocino, California.
All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere, to listen, download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. Our email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is post office box 7, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastad is the associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.